Welcome back to another episode of DF Direct Weekly. This is episode 60, week 18 of 2022. I'm John Lindemann. Richard Ledbetter is out on assignment this week, so I am taking over the hosting duties. There's a lot of stuff to talk about and a very special guest, as you'll see in a moment. But first, as always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Alex Battaglia. Hi there, John, friend and colleague. I'm very excited to talk about actually a good amount of stuff on the docket today. Uh, people have been saying slow news week, but we always manage to find something. So I'm excited and for our special guest. Exactly. And that special guest is making his debut on DF Direct Weekly. It's Oliver. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, you've been doing some awesome videos for us now for a while. Uh, I say you're officially part of the team. Of course. So, and I, you know, I, <laughs> I get I get to say that now. So Richard's not here. And, you know, I think you are. So it's really nice that you could finally be here for DF Direct, despite the massive time zone difference. But here yes. we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's currently, it's currently uh, 1 a.m. in Canada. So if I'm a little bit slow, please forgive me. <laughs> All right. But anyway, let's get on with it. Okay, first order of business this week is, of course, the Square Enix sale. That's right. Earlier this week, they sold off pretty much all of their Western developers and IP uh, for $300 million to the Embracer Group. Uh, and boy, this is an interesting one because this sort of sale slash acquisition is a completely different situation than when, say, a first party company like Sony or Microsoft acquires a large studio, uh, because fundamentally this will remain a true third party developer. Nothing will change on that side, but I do think there is a lot of potential here for these studios and IP after squares, arguable mismanagement. I don't know. What do you think? Who wants to go first? Alex, what do you got on this? I would love to go first here because I feel like ever since Square Enix uh, took control of these studios and these IPs, uh, they have done good things with them. I would always contend, in spite of everything, that the Deus Ex uh, relaunch, reboot, uh, has a lot of positive aspects. I think John really likes those games as, as much as I do. The new Tomb Raider games, um, less successful, I would think, as, of a translation in terms of getting the whole puzzle element down. But I thought or the reboot of the character in general, in terms of the design, was a, a really attractive. Um, but as I say that, Square Enix are notorious for setting extremely unrealistic expectations for how games are sold, uh, not realizing that you're looking at semi-niche categories of gaming. I mean, sure, everyone rec- remembers Tomb Raider from the 90s and what it was back then, but gaming has changed quite a lot. And Deus Ex, for example, is also not a game that's going to be selling as much as GTA. But Square Enix had these uh, projected sales that were never, ever really met uh, with any of these games. And I always thought that was a shame uh, because the games were well made, but they didn't sell to the unrealistic expectations of Square. Uh, And since that was the case, we had essentially these studios working uh, most recently on Marvel franchise uh, games. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, a a well-made game that John has praised quite often on the channel, and then as well, uh, Marvel Avengers, which, while being a very pretty game, (laughs) uh, it's, you know, it's going for that modern, loot-driven, endgame, destiny-style blah. (sighs) You know, it lacks a lot of it lacks a lot of the heart and soul that we saw in Guardians of the Galaxy. And both of those games underperformed, of course, according to the expectations of Square Enix, 
without even considering the fact that these type of games don't necessarily are not always as big as Destiny 2, for example. Um, so them, they kind of tanked. Uh, according well, to reporting, they were like lost $200 million. Well, I was going to say, you know, they spent so, a ton of money on Avengers yeah. in the first place. The whole Marvel stuff, I think that was a huge mistake. Huge. Uh, that ultimately cost them more than I think was worth it. And the game itself wasn't great, as you say. But these are very talented studios, and they've done amazing stuff. And I really want to see them in the hands of, of an owner that will hopefully take better care of that uh, and perhaps be more realistic with what they're spending and what they're allowing and what they're developing. And, you know, we'll have to see. But, uh, Oliver, what do you think about this? I think it's probably positive, especially when you consider the recent pushed by Square Enix, I think the, their infamous December letter to their fans, yeah, right. where they were talking about uh, they're focusing on the on the blockchain and the cloud and on NFTs, oh. and indeed, indeed, in this announcement, right, um, they sold the studios and only for three hundred million, which is kind of curious. I guess most of that value is in the IP and not in the studios themselves. It's very low, yeah, it's very low. Um, but they said they're doing it so they can better focus on. NFTs, the blockchain, and cloud. I think. Yeah. Yeah. They so did say that. in that environment, AI. yeah, I, I'd much rather they just be in the hands of some sort of conglomerate that can at least, you know, I mean, Embracer used to be called THQ Nordic, I believe, um, mm -hmm. and so they have a pretty decent history of uh, of maintaining um, franchises. So I think it's a better move there. Yeah, that's kind of the hope here. And again. The thing is with these acquisitions, everybody immediately jumps to like, oh man, I hope they all bring back my favorite IPs. And that's not necessarily a foregone conclusion, but I do think in the case of Square Enix, they were scrambling to try to find ways to make as much money as possible, well, like any business, I suppose. But it felt like they were not necessarily giving these guys a fair shake, considering the amount of talent and skill on display. Uh, so I'm, you know, especially with IDOS Mon Montreal, I love those guys. They've done some amazing stuff and I really want to see them be given another shot here. Uh, and I honestly, I'd be okay with an original IP with more Deus Ex or even another Guardians game, you know, beef, I'm not, beef. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just yelling it. <laughs> their, th their thief reboot was okay but it's uh, fine yeah i liked it i liked it's it but enough. it's definitely missing some things and i would like to see them take another shot at it and especially on modern hardware because one of the issues with that and thief 3 before it actually is that they weren't able to produce those gigantic maps that thief was known for back in the day um but yeah the the whole thing is strange unexpected and sudden and as you said, Oliver, like the whole 300 million selling price, that's ridiculously low. Uh, and I kind of wonder if, you know, you look at Microsoft, they have uh, uh, Crystal Dynamics is now partnering up with uh, the developers of the Perfect Dark. Yeah, the initiative. Reboot, I guess. The initiative, yeah. So I suspect that Microsoft probably would have at least tried to snap up Crystal if they weren't in the middle of the Activision stuff. Because, you know, that they kind of have to probably be cautious right now. Um, but I'm actually relieved that neither Sony or Microsoft got their hands on these companies and that it will remain fully third party. I think that's, that's great. And hopefully, so we'll keep an eye on that. I wouldn't expect any major announcements for a while. Um, but yeah, anything else you guys want to add? 
Uh, the one thing I want to just, since they did acquire so many IPs as a part of this, and there's a great history of them, one thing we have to think about with Embracer is they wouldn't necessarily use uh, the studios that they acquired here to um, have all these IPs uh, be developed. So they have a whole bunch of studios now. Uh, there's an incredible list you could probably find on Wikipedia about how Embracer has embraced so many uh, different developers now. And there's definitely a number on that list that don't have currently announced uh, uh games as work in progress uh that would be perfect for some of the ips that square enix sold off here for so, instance crystal yeah. dynamics crash and burn for the yeah. 3do yeah, crash why, and burn yeah, 2 not, right? i'm into that crash or honestly burn. gex you know everybody's talking about gex because so, it's the, hot, the hottest ip right now yeah uh, I, 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 yeah gex <laughs> why not but uh, the thing is i think there's a lot of ips here where there's games stuck on certain uh consoles uh gex is an interesting one where you know that's like primarily what N64 and PlayStation. Uh, it's kind of well, just 3DO like, first. Uh, 3DO. Yeah. How could I forget the 2D 3DO? Sorry, game? Alex. I'm That's so where sorry, started, man. Um, <laughs> let's the let's gecko with Tude. Um, yeah, you know those are games that could honestly be really quickly kind of night dive style brought out uh, onto newer platforms and sell admittedly yes, okay. Yes. So that's like what I feel about a number of these IPs, especially Old Thief. Um, there's no reason to make a new game when you could just re-release those old ones, which are so good anyway. Um, so that's kind of how I view it. I would like to see Embracer do that. I do not know if they will, though, of course. Please embrace Night Dive, Embracer. Yes. Would, but don't buy, be don't buy them. Don't buy them. No, no, no. Don't buy them. Uh, <laughs> while I'm thinking about IP, I would actually like to see Return still. Legacy of Kane, the Soul Reaver games. I, I would love to see a new take on that series. And I think it could hit big. Especially in this modern era. how big modern Zelda is. I almost feel like it would yeah. work really well, you know? I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Yeah. So, um, all right. Unless you guys have something else, we should probably move on to the next topic. Mm -hmm. Next topic on the docket today is Halo Infinite Season 2. Uh, that's right. Just this, this week, they released uh, a new patch with new content, all sorts of things. And, of course... I'm not really playing multiplayer. I don't think any of you guys are right now, but I was immediately interested to see, have they addressed any of the issues essentially? Mm. <laughs> so have, have either of you guys had a chance to play it? I have, but no, I've been doing steam deck stuff. Uh, but you know, I was just like you at release and after the subsequent patches thereafter, really still kind of disappointed in some of the single player stuff uh, that we were seeing. So John, are some of those things better? From what you're testing um so first of all we probably we will consider doing a video on this you know if it's more in depth but i did want to run through my quick impressions here of what i did find and mm. it starts right away with the cutscenes. since the beginning we were annoyed with the fact that the cutscene animation was extremely juddery and, and not smooth at all when it really should be and they fixed it at last like mostly it's it's actually good now like the cutscenes look great in motion in a way that they did not before. So the animation is correctly interpolated. Uh, everything plays back smoothly, even at 120 hertz, by the way. Uh, the only caveat there is that the mouths and facial expressions are still updated at a much lower rate. And it's not the biggest deal in every cutscene, especially when Chief is on screen, because unlike the show, they don't show his face. <laughs> so you don't see that. It's really, it's, it's mainly an issue when they're showing the brutes speaking because they have those exaggerated facial expressions and you really see like, Oh yeah, it's low rate, but still 
the actual animation work is so much better. And so, so is the camera motion that you remember Alex, that initial scene when you first get on the Pelican after emerging and it's flying across there and they kick in the music, the halo theme and everything, but in its original form, it's all stuttery and not smooth at all. And it just kind of destroys the mood. That's fixed. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I would be really curious if the Pelican scene, there's an, actually a, another bug in the Pelican scene there where all the lights inside the Pelican are actually moving out of sync with the Pelican's movement and they like flash and go crazy. I would be curious to see if they fix that. I will load up the game. If we do we do a video out. on this, I, I will try and figure that out. Do-do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Happened again. <laughs> Happened again, yeah. Um, the other things, let's see here. Um, video playback, I mentioned... This is such a small thing, really, but it's like an attention to detail thing. In the original game, the the black levels were incorrectly set for all videos. So especially those with black bars were just extremely washed out, which is, it looks bad on an OLED screen where you get those perfect blacks. Uh, That's now fixed. Um, The videos themselves are still relatively low quality in terms of the encoding, but the actual playback is now much more correct. It's smoother. The black levels are set correctly it's much more possible to enjoy them when they play back. So, and then another minor thing I noticed is that the menu is now fixed, where is in many cases you'd have this, like you'd have some depth of field on the background, but then you'd have areas of the screen that had no depth of field with like a really harsh line running through it. That looked very awkward. That seems to be fixed. So the overall like menu navigation presentation side is improved. Um, They also changed the way the options menu work. And this is something we're going to have to analyze, but It's now set to 30, 60, or 120 frames per second. You just choose the frame rate rather than any sort of quality nomenclature there, right? Uh, And that's that's what's interesting, because now on Xbox Series X, you can choose 30 FPS, and on Xbox Series S, you can choose 120, finally, just like the beta, uh, which is great. I have not tested Series S yet, so I don't know how it looks or runs, but we will probably look at that. Uh, the 30 FPS mode on a Series X, I'm kind of going to say it's not that useful. I haven't done any A-B comparisons to see what really changes. It just seems like it maybe stabilizes resolution, so it's like always six or always 4K, but yeah. it's that, not worth the hit. Yeah, it's I'd really be curious if they the have hit. VRS still on there as well, too, because, you know, that's degrading the image yeah. quality to a higher degree than we've seen in other VS titles uh, with Halo Infinite. There are some things that if, if John and I do do this video, do do this video. It keeps um, happening. It just keeps happening. I don't know how to speak English. I, I don't know what to say. Um, the if uh, if we do do this video, I would really like to look into some of the PC issues that I talked about, uh, specifically the VSync being fixed. Like if they went through and they actually fixed the issue with the cutscene animations, I would really hope they looked at their frame rate limiter and seeing that it's just not at all what a frame rate limiter is supposed to do correctly. I would really hope they fixed that. Um, I would also maybe want to look at the CPU performance of just tra- traversing the levels, which I thought was right. stupidly high uh, on PC when it launched. Um, well, we already saw GPU performance being better. CPU performance being better would be a nice little tick on there. And I think the last thing we should probably look at and really uh, hark uh, upon if they did not fix it would be the VRR issue where where the game, you know, it, it technically runs with VRR on, but the, the motion isn't smooth, right? Uh, so It's not fixed. It's yeah, not fixed. I it tested. Isn't? Oh, my God. So well, fundamentally, it's like when you're panning the camera, um, 
you'll actually see the VRR range change as it should, but it doesn't look smoother. Like you actually still see the judder and it ends up looking identical, whether you have VRR on or off. So even though VRR is technically engaging, it doesn't work with this game. And this affects both Xbox and the PC. And on PC, it's especially annoying because you tend to set really high limit on your frame rate and then just let your frame rate kind of adjust, you know, uh, well, that's what I do for most PC games anyway. And here it just doesn't work. You really need to lock it down to get consistent motion. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. It seems to be an issue with their V-Sync implementation of some sort, where the way they're updating the screen is just not really compatible with VRR. For I don't understand, though. Like, this is such a rare issue that I, it's hard to say what's causing it. Um, hopefully, you know, bringing it to attention again, maybe they'll be able to eventually figure out what's going on there. I would hope uh, so. But, you know, there's a lot of issues that they've had since launch that have yet to be looked at. Like, I do think, like, just the frame rate limiter stuff. And in general, the frame rate limiter actually has massive frame pacing issues on every platform. So I'd be really curious if it also has those issues on Xbox Series X. These are all things we're going to look into. I don't know. Is there yeah, anything yeah, we missed yeah. out on there, Oliver, like in terms of <laughs> that we should also look at if we do this video? <laughs> things that you're curious about? Well, I mean, I, I've beaten uh, Halo Infinite twice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't know. It, to me, it always just feels like on, on console, at least on Series X, it felt reasonably polished. But like the bugs that were there felt like pretty deep bugs like all the animation stuff yeah 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 because that's i think i think held over from prior halo titles so i'm really glad and, and frankly a little bit surprised to see that they've been able to address them within a pretty reasonable i don't know i mean it's been like six seven yeah. months but i mean yeah you know they have fixed them for the most part uh i think i think that's very positive and and yeah i just I'm wondering if maybe the VRR thing might be one of those as well, just based off of like some tech debt they might have in their engine yeah, at this yeah, point. That's a good point. Uh, it's a good game though. I got to say like it does, it's still like picking up again after so many months. Yeah. I was really like, wow, this still plays super well. Like the mm -hmm. combat is just awesome. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. I really enjoy yeah. it. So still have yet to I hope it, that's but maybe now with the cutscene animations being better, maybe I will <laughs> actually dig in. Ah, uh, finally. I really hope that they can build upon what they've made here and come out with a really strong sequel to it with more diverse environments and everything, which is what it seems like they want it to do in the first place. And we're not able to pull off this time. Uh, but the actual base of the gameplay is so good and so much better than anything else 343 had released to date, I would say. Like, it's, it's super well done. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep everybody up to date on more halo stuff because it is it's a good game so all right let's move on to the next topic then the third thing on our list this week is sort of a strange rumory thing that was floating around and reported on various sites concerning forza motorsport 8 specifically the notion that it might in fact be a cross-generation game there's no official confirmation but there is now suggestion that it might just be so What's going on with this, Oliver? Have you, have you have you followed up with this? No, not too much. Outside of like the initial reporting, it just looks like the game is running in some form on base Xbox One um, in developments. So that certainly suggests that it's going to be a cross-gen title. I would just hope that they have the game running on last-generation consoles in a way that would allow them to scale it reasonably well in terms of the uh, visual quality to current-gen consoles. Because, like, if you look last generation for FM 5, 6, and 7, those were all 1080p60 on base Xbox One with four times MSA. 
you know, you can, you can certainly get a decent looking game out of that on current gen consoles, but it won't be a next gen looking title, right? So I would, I'd hope they would bring back the performance target on last gen, bring back the resolution target and aim for a higher level of fidelity in general. So that actually scales pretty well to current yeah. gen, if that is indeed what they're doing. That's kind of what I would hope to hope to yeah. see. But yeah, that's my only real mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to agree on that as well. And I would say that the Forza does have a pretty good history with scalability where, you know, you look at Forza Horizon 5 and the way that they scaled up the assets for the series consoles was very smartly done and it allowed them to design a game that would work on both last-gen and current-gen systems without compromising the more uh, advanced experience you get on the next-gen or current-gen machines, right? Um, But I... There was, a, there was this impression that because it's been so long since Forza Motorsport 7 that they were really re-architecting everything from the ground up. And it just makes sense to me that if you're going to that distance that you would want to push it all the way, especially when, you know, the competition as it is, uh, Gran Turismo 7, is a cross-gen game. This would be a good chance to essentially come out swinging with something that's only on uh, series X and that they could really push the visual target much, much further. But on the flip side, there is some positive news to this in the sense that if it is in fact a cross gen game and it's still a track based racer, which no reason to doubt that it won't be, uh, it might actually be feasible to see real time ray tracing in gameplay this time, right? Like ray traced reflections on the cars while racing because the overall visual target might be just low enough where it's actually now feasible because Forza Horizon 5 doesn't have this option on the consoles. Gran Turismo 7 doesn't have this option on the consoles. That would be a huge feature, I think, because it adds a lot in a racing game where you have a lot of cars sort of bunched up because you end up with reflections of cars within one another. <laughs> yeah, it looks uh, nice. Which looks really awesome. So yeah, uh, hopefully we'll see that. I, I don't know. What, so. do you, what do you think, Alex? I would hope so too. I mean, they... Um, when the Series X was like announced and shortly thereafter, they did have that like visual target video that showed off real time ray tracing and what was to be Forza Motorsport 8. It was a 30 FPS video, but it had some nice high quality ray tracing in there. Um, I would hope that that is partially representative of whatever their goals are, uh, for the Series uh, X specifically there. Uh, hopefully at 60 though, because you know, 30 in a in a, a race in a track racer is not the greatest feeling ever. Um, but I'm also curious, like you guys are, whether or not uh, going cross-gen will have implications on the visuals that are not like, like what we actually want. Because the reason why we want to get out of the cross-gen period is to enable techniques uh, as being the baseline design for a game. Uh, so like they design the track with the idea of ray tracing in mind and they're not like, uh, doing a bunch of shortcuts and a bunch of other things to make it work. Uh, and then it just kind of looks like an added layer on that's, I mean, that's nice and we appreciate it, but it's also much nicer when, uh, baseline effects are just part of the design document. Um, so I don't know. I, I kind of hope it actually doesn't pan out to being true. And we're seeing like a, um, what is it like killer instinct 2013 on Xbox 360 kind of thing where yeah, yeah, yeah. there is a build that works, yeah. but, you know, like, it's not the way that they're actually making the game. Or, like, uh, Gears 3 and PlayStation 3. Yeah, Gears 3 yeah. and PlayStation 3. It's 15 to 20 <laughs> FPS. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's there, exactly. but... It's there, but, like, I don't know. Uh, I hope it's that. Yeah. I don't know if it will be, but fingers crossed. All right. So we'll obviously 
keep up to date on Forza 8 whenever that arrives. They haven't announced a release date, have they? I believe so. No. Uh, I, I was kind of anticipating it would arrive later this year, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's move on to the next topic. Okay, so this next one is interesting because it is involving the Prince of Persia Sands of Time remake, which was announced, uh, when was it? It was back in 2020, I think. It's been a while. It's been a hot minute, uh, but we haven't seen much of it since then. And they sort of pushed the launch date back a few times and it had a second delay and it was not clear what was going on. So we did just discover this week then that uh, it's the original developers of Ubisoft and Mumbai and Poon uh, have essentially been removed from the project seemingly and it's now back at ubisoft montreal which is actually the original studio responsible for the game back in the day though who can say how much actual staff is the same between them at this point i would be curious to know but i don't know what do you what do you guys make of this oliver uh i think it's probably good i mean i wasn't really impressed with the teaser trailer they showed off back in (laughs) i think september 2020 i mean it looked fine but just I don't know. Didn't really excite me, but I did read through the release on this one from uh, Ubisoft, and there was some funny language in here. I, I I don't know quite what it means, but but maybe you guys can can reflect on it. But they said that this decision is an important step in the team, building upon the work achieved by Ubisoft Poon and Ubisoft Mumbai, will now take the time they need to regroup on the scope of the game to deliver you a good experience. So I sort of am wondering, because the game has already slipped its initial release window of January 2021 by like almost, I guess, a year and a half at this point. I kind of wonder if they're really just going to constrain this down, basically make it more of a remake of the original, something along those lines, and just get it out the door. It's starting to sound more like what we know of the Shenmue 1 and 2 HD release, which was originally, I remember I, I did that video on that actually, where they were originally doing a full remake with all new assets and everything. Uh, and then after a certain point, Sega decided, you know what, we're not doing it anymore. Rain it in, guys. And then they basically shipped sort of an HD, mildly enhanced version instead. I hope that's not what's happening here, but the language does make it seem like they had to step back and sort of reprioritize development resources and be like, all right, maybe we can't afford to spend all this time and money and, and manpower on this thing after all. So, I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Alex? I, I was always a little bit confused by the existence of this game. Cause I think the first game, if you were just to re-release it, you know, with like better resolution, it wouldn't be the worst looking game. You already get that on uh, Xbox, by the way. You already have it on Xbox. Is it back pat or whatever? It's back and pat and it runs in high res. so. Uh, So like, like that, right? Like, it, it always felt, I always felt like this was a bit uh, superfluous. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it was a vanity project or exactly what its its origin is there at Ubisoft, uh, but I didn't ever feel the real need for it, especially when, you know, there's so many other things you could do with Prince of Persia, like a new game, for example. Uh, a new, why not a new game? I don't know. Uh, so I wasn't always, I was, and I didn't find that original trailer actually very good looking at all. Uh, it just kind of looked like, weird up res yeah, kind of it's not great. look to it. It wasn't the best looking game, I thought. Um, so 
whatever they're going to do out of this right now, it's probably the best for the project if it was going out of scope. I can't imagine a game of this size going out of scope, but so it goes. Uh, I guess the one thing that's a little sad about it is that it's nice to see when studios have a successful uh, debut. And like this Mumbai studio, I actually don't know what other games they worked on where they met, how were like they they were the leads on the project. Taking the lead, yeah. Yeah, so it would have been really nice to see them have a successful game put out, but it seems like that's not going to be the case now. And it's probably a real bummer for the people who worked on the game. Oh, I'm sure. So I feel for them, uh, for sure. It's not always easy because, you know, you're given a project and the exact scope and the exact desires from the publisher itself are maybe not clear at the beginning. And then they become all the more clear towards the point where the project's already moved past that area where you can't really go back and start over. I just uh, hope so, this refocus doesn't include uh, NFTs or some sort of blockchain I mean, nonsense. That's the new Ubisoft thing, so maybe <laughs> it will. You know, we have no idea what they're going to do. Maybe they'll release the first game, uh, the original uh, Prince of Persia as an NFT. We, we have no clue. The non-fungible dagger yeah that he uses <laughs> you cannot funge this dagger i'm telling you it's not fudging that at all um oh, oh my well <laughs> uh i i hope it i hope it actually turns out okay i do yeah. love that series um i'm sad that it's kind of disappeared and assassin's creed has taken over in a big way and assassin's creed has also i feel kind of lost its way from those Completely. originals uh, it's not at all what it once was so uh, yeah. We'll see what happens, though. Definitely keep an eye on that. But let's move on to the next topic. So this one's sort of a topic that has afflicted myself and some others recently with specific hardware. And I wanted to share some findings and sort of a workaround to it. So I'm specifically talking about Xbox's uh, input into certain model AV receivers configured in a specific way. <laughs> so what do I mean? Uh, essentially, in the past month or so, when the Xbox switches into 4K 120, 10-bit per channel, with VR enabled, I would often get a dropout. So it switches to it, screen basically goes black, and or on the LG, it just shows those static sort of painting images. It basically loses the, the signal. Um, I found that you can actually get this back by going into the AV our menu, make a couple changes, go back out, then it reappears. But it's extremely annoying, and I couldn't figure out why it has kept happening. Uh, and it is being investigated currently. But my current theory is that this is actually related to a firmware update on the receiver. And what receivers does this impact? Well, specifically, it seems to impact Denon and Marantz receivers, even with, with the fixed HDMI 2.1 chip, by the way. Uh, specifically when using the little add-on box. I think it's the VS3003. And what that is, is it sort of breaks out the HDMI 2.1 input into additional inputs. It's an official box. Uh, I've been using it for a while to get more inputs, basically. And I've been talking with other users that have either the Marantz or Denon version. I'm using the Marantz SR7015. Uh, and they're all having these same problems now, all of a sudden. And it's all when using the, the VS box. Um, so I did a lot of testing. And if you're using one of these receivers and having this trouble, uh, first of all, PC doesn't have the issue at all. I can still run my PC into this box, no problem. 4K 120, 10-bit, uh, VRR, not an issue. Works just like it always did. 
Uh, PS5 works fine, but that's using like lower bandwidth. But Xbox would always drop out if you try to enable VRR when using the higher settings. Uh, and you would have to do that trick. So to work around it, though, I found what you can do. And this is just sort of a PSA if you have this kind of setup and you've run into this and while we're waiting on a fix. But essentially, you want to set your Xbox to 8 bits per channel rather than 10 or 12 for SDR content. That's right in the menu under video quality. This won't actually affect the quality of H of SDR content really. Uh, it don't, that only really matters for HDR. But so you do that, then you can enable VRR and you'll get 4K 120, eight bits per channel, and you'll get VRR, no problem. But the, the issue here is that when it goes into HDR mode, it needs to switch to a higher color depth to display it properly. And if you're just using regular HDR 10, you get the same problem again, it blinks out. The workaround then is simply to enable Dolby Vision mode. Uh, by doing this, it causes the Xbox to output 12 bits per channel using YUV422, so chroma subsampling, uh, and a fixed rate link of 32 gigabits per second rather than 40, which is normal. And with this configuration, I'm able to use VRR again, no problem, just as I was prior to the stupid updates. <laughs> so, uh, I tweeted about this recently and I've been discussing it with some people and we're trying to get to the bottom of it. And again, it only affects, of course, seemingly um, users of those receivers. But we, you know, other people have had issues with weird signal dropouts as well for no reason where it doesn't necessarily come back. Like when I was helping Mark from My Life in Gaming set up the C2 and the C1, he first plugged the Xbox right into the thing, changed the video mode and this screen just blinked out. And he had to unplug the cable, plug it back in. And then it, which by the way, also fixes it. But I don't recommend hot swapping live HDMI cables. Don't do it. Trust me, don't do it. It can result in very bad things. <laughs> Are you talking about uh, your PS3 issues, John? No, other other things. It's, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's something to, to be aware of. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Sorry for rambling. I just wanted to share that in case somebody else is in this exact position. Cause I know plenty of people have these AV receivers because they're one of the only ones out there that can actually do HDMI 2.1 stuff correctly yeah. normally. But I think that whatever they've done, and I know the receiver had a, had a firmware update recently. Uh, I think it's probably related to that. And it's only something that occurs when using that add on box, by the way, if I plug the Xbox directly into the one HDMI 2.1 input, no problem. It's when using that extra box, nothing else changed. It worked flawlessly for months and months and months, no problem. And then this started. So if you're having those issues, give that a shot and hopefully it'll fix it. <laughs> I don't know what you guys think about all this. Uh, but... I just am reminded here at this moment that I find the uh, situation around HDMI 2.1 I just dreadful in general. Oh, uh, the awful. fact that you had the, so, the issues with AV receivers actually not supporting it, the issue with Sony sets like doing like weird uh, missing vertical res when stuff is enabled yep. in 2.1 mode and all these things. It's just like, you know, there's no point of a standard if it's like scarcely adhered to and or it doesn't or it's too vague in its wording to be considered a real standard. Uh, so I just feel like it's in general just kind of crapshoot. I, I think uh, the problem so. stems from the the massive bandwidth requirements necessary to pull this off and all the other communications happening at the chip level. 
I'm not sure that a lot of providers were entirely ready to handle this well, as well as cable makers too, right? You could be pretty lax with standards when dealing with older HDMI, I think, and it would just kind of work. But I think with this stuff, you really need to nail those specifications. You've got to get every part of it just right. And if you don't, it's going to fail and act up uh, because you're asking so much of it at that point. But I got to say, I've, I've never had issues like this with DisplayPort. I don't know about you guys, but DisplayPort just kind of works. No, I mean, like DisplayPort, DVI, just I like those standards actually quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So HDMI, it's a mess. Uh, I really, I'm, I'm so tired of HDMI. I just wish it would, <laughs> would just work all the time. Goodness. Uh, but that's enough of that. Let's move on to one final news topic. We're just going to touch on this one. It's kind of a rumory thing, but let's go. So there have been some leaks, fellas, oh, about uh, some upcoming NVIDIA Lovelace action, uh, potentially yeah. suggesting 100 teraflops of FP32 power. Uh, this is wild. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Alex? Like, uh, <laughs> uh, Well, so... We've talked about teraflops a lot on the channel before. Rich has done a video on the importance of oh, teraflops yeah. in the lead up to the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X launch that was rather enlightening. Uh, so Oliver is the one who kind of uh, uh, added this idea to talk about this in the docket. And I think it's actually a good idea because in even if this doesn't pan out, uh, of 100 announced teraflops for the largest uh, Lovelace chip that is going to be released. Uh, it's still important to talk about what teraflops really are. And, and in this case, I think we saw how, not deceptive, but just how how you need more context than just the number of teraflops to have an understanding of GPU performance. And we saw yeah. that when Ampere released, uh, where you know it had like almost double the FP32 uh, compute teraflops uh, when you were do the math uh, in comparison to Turing, but it wasn't actually really a big bearing on performance in games. And that's because mm -hmm. games don't just scale with that, that metric necessarily. Um, so I would like to see this happen just because it would be great to say it just nominally like, oh yeah, 100 teraflops, this is so stupid. Um, but at the same time, I actually think we should wait until there's some a more con con concrete news out there uh, covering these series of chips, which should be, I think, around se September, October launch is the current scuttlebutt. Right, right. Uh, that so, would make sense. Uh, yeah, that that I would. I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I don't actually care that much about just like raw compute performance. What I would really like to see regarding Lovelace in general is just uh, a greater focus on the ray tracing side of things and the machine learning side of things and maybe new feature mm -hmm. sets altogether uh, that we haven't seen on Turing and Ampere, uh, whatever they may be. I would also like to see that same thing on the RDNA 3 side of things. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about this there, Oliver? Uh, I think, I mean, I think it's less about the teraflop number for me and more mm -hmm. just in terms of like nvidia clearly plans to launch a very large lovelace chip probably for consumer there will probably be like a 600 millimeter squared lovelace monolithic chip for consumers and it'll probably be in the maybe in the 500 or 600 watt range in terms of power draw like that seems like a realistic product at this point mm -hmm. um and obviously what that means for ray tracing performance 
and a machine learning performance, I mean, that's much more compelling to me personally than just looking at a FP32 number. I mean, I totally agree there. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, yeah. But also interestingly is that AMD is going to launch their competitor product, and that is not a monolithic GPU design, that's multi-chip. It seems like mm -hmm. it's going to have five or six chips connected through an interconnect, much like you see right now with Ryzen processors. Yeah. So, right. but, but they're also, again, many grains of many salts here but <laughs> pe pe people are also suggesting maybe numbers in the in the 90 to 100 teraflop range possibly who knows right but i mean i think the bigger story is both nvidia and amd are making very large gpu designs of different of different kinds for the next generation and yeah. uh, they'll likely be very power hungry and they'll be very expensive but i think they'll offer pretty tremendous performance which in games with lots of rt features i think you're going to really see those scale quite nicely on that hardware so yeah, yeah. One, uh, one thing I'm thinking about here is, you know, we talked about it, was it two weeks ago now, the idea of the 900 watt GPU. Uh, and I saw some commentary that I thought was very important online to think about. Uh, I am all, I'm not a huge fan of massive uh, power draw for um, consumer components, but at the same time, I realize that there are indeed Halo products out there that fill out a niche category. Like there's nothing wrong with this uh, extremely large Passably power-hungry uh, NVIDIA or AMD chip with massive amounts of memory being really useful for other branches of things other than just playing Quake 2 RTX and native 4K. Uh, you know, like the large data sets uh, for machine learning stuff. That's the whole reason why there's also a different CDNA segment um, in general. But like, I do think they actually have a place and it's we shouldn't always be judging the the, the next generation of GPUs by the extremely large chip, but those mid-range chips are also in their own right very interesting and uh, especially if they want to fulfill my desire of 2x console for per performance at a reasonable price uh, that's what i'm really going to be super interested in, uh, when those chips probably come out so yeah that's all that's all good stuff i'm excited to see what comes out of this and you know as usual i'm sure nvidia usually launches with their uh higher end products first and then we get the sort of mid-range products later so we should get a taste of what it can really do um, I am curious, you know, I always want to see those G80-like releases with this sort of generation of cards that arrives after new consoles, you know, where it just it pushes out the boundaries of what you think is possible in the 3D rendering space in a way that's uh, really exciting. And this time it could be especially interesting because, you know, consoles do support ray tracing, obviously, but we're already finding so many limitations there. Like Alex, you did the Chernobyl light video this week and the amount of cutbacks made to make that possible is pretty dramatic, I would say. Uh, and compared against current generation PC GPUs, they're already way ahead. And this next generation then promises perhaps just like a gigantic leap in ray traced cool. performance yeah. um, that could see the PC really begin to pull away. And I'll be curious to see what this means for stuff like Unreal Engine. Five specifically, although in that case, CPU still seems to be a significant <laughs> bottleneck. And yeah. of course, you know, we're excited talking about all this GPU stuff and that's great. And NVIDIA is doing amazing work there as an AMD is catching up. But fundamentally though, PC gaming does kind of have a problem lately still, mm -hmm. you know, hashtag Stuttergate, whatever <laughs> you're calling it, Alex. Stutter struggle. <laughs> stutter struggle. Hashtag shut stutter struggle. Yeah. Uh, and it just seems like more and more PC games are launching with pretty serious issues that are completely independent from like the power of your GPU. Right. Yeah. And I feel like this is something that 
PC developers really need to take seriously, try to get under control going forward because uh, it sucks if you're you know putting a thousand dollar plus GPU in your rig. It's you're maxing out. You got the high end CPU, tons yeah. of RAM, fast storage. PLSS, you load up the latest everything. game. Yeah. Big cinematic happens, big moment, and then it's just like dip, 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 stutter. Yeah, it's so disappointing. Um, that I, first I guess, scare, dude, in Chernobyl light, that one where the, the, the lady transformed, like the the length of that stutter is unbelievable, man. It's dude, just it's so bad, right? I really wish I. So <laughs> back in the day, I actually used to record my mic when I was also recording, uh, just by happenstance. I would do that. Uh, and I really am sad I didn't do that for the Chernobylite video because I guffaw laughed so hard after the first uh, massive stutter <laughs> there. Uh, it would have made great content for the video for sure, but alas, I missed that opportunity. I think, uh, yeah, you're totally right there, John. And I think uh, there's going to be need to be a big think from the IHV and uh, developer side if this keeps going on because. My threatening video is going to come out at some point in time uh, that will talk about stutter in a really holistic way. And it's just a matter of finding the time to start it, uh, really. Uh, but as news slows down, I think it's actually the time is ripe. Uh, and there's going to be a uh, not a, there's going to be, how do you say, like a valley. There's not going to be a lot of uh, releases coming out soon. So perfect timing is coming up. And I hope it does uh, cause some movement in the industry when this video comes out. We'll see. Okay, gentlemen, that wraps up the news segment. I'm going to attempt to transition over to the Q&A section now. I may not be able to do it as smoothly as Richard Ledbetter. He is truly a master of this. But uh, if you're a member of the Digital Foundry Supporter Program, as always, every week you can submit questions to the show. We pick the ones that pick our interest that week. Not to say that all the questions aren't great, because most of them are. And we're going to read them right here on the show. So let's get into it. Starting with one that I specifically picked to sort of rib Alex a little bit because we've been discussing about these results internally and trying to understand, you know, what this means. So this one comes from Simplex and he says, there are rumblings on Reddit that the built-in frame limiter on Steam Deck greatly increases input lag in some games, especially in the 40 hertz mode. I hope you could test it and either confirm or debunk. Okay, so I'm the guy with the Steam Deck. I don't think you have one, Oliver, to my knowledge. Do you? Me neither. No. Okay, so no. Um, uh, so in general, I understand why people are thinking about this because around the time, you know, I would say due to videos from Battle Nonsense, which were very educational, they were covering a very different segment of PC user, though. It was mainly like, you're using a really high refresh VRR display. What is the effect of using G-Sync, uh, uh, hitting your frame rate target, and all these other things, and which frame rate capper uh, will give you a consistent as well as low input latency experience. And I'm talking the numbers there, usually in those videos, by the way, were extremely minuscule, the differences between different frame ca rate caps and things like that. Uh, very small. Okay, so that's like the, the, the background information here, just a very different mindset. Um, with the Steam Deck, we are talking about a screen that is at max 60 hertz and is always compositing all of the video. 
uh, that is going out, much like the Windows desktop would in windowed mode in a DX11 title, for example. Uh, so you would always get triple buffered vSync. Now, the thing is, uh, originally the Steam Deck did not launch with an uncapping option. There's an uncap option now, uh, whether you're at 40 hertz or 60 hertz. And one thing that people in the audience need to understand, as far as, far as I understand, that uncapping option enables what is called true triple buffering. You are actually not getting frame tears still on the Steam Deck in the normal Steam Deck OS mode. Uh, what it does is it allows the game to render as many frames as possible in the background and keep latency as low as possible instead of only having a limit of two or three buffers. That is essentially it. And it'll shunt out the, the most recent screen in that time period instead of uh, waiting or having to wait for another buffer to become free. Uh, when you start capping, it, it, according to all the things I've ever seen, is it enables what is not classic triple buffering, but what you see in a lot of games. Uh, most games these days, actually, is where uh, the GPU is now limited to three buffers, uh, you know, two, two back buffered, one forward buffer, one front buffer. And uh, the reason why it's doing that is because you actually, on the Steam Deck, you want to limit the amount of performance you're getting uh, internally at the cost of input latency. Because why? Steam Deck is a handheld device. It, battery. If you want the, um, yeah, like, imagine that. Like, you're capping your frame rate, but in the background, for input latency reasons, it's actually rendering 200 FPS. Uh, you're going to destroy your battery life there on the Steam Deck. There's no reason to cap the game at that point. Uh, so that's the reason why they do that, I'm very sure. Um, so these are all new options. Uh, and there's a good reason to cap your frame rate on the deck and not use that uncapped version if you are moving around your house, going outside with the Steam Deck. You want to preserve battery life as much as possible. So in general, we're always looking at a device that is triple buffered in one sense of that word, whether it's the true triple buffering of unlocked uncapped mode or using the cap uh, and, you know, you get that class, that not classic, I don't know what we should call it, but just limited three buffer existence. Uh, it's not using all of the GPU on purpose and uh, not all of the CPU on purpose. So when we get into that mode, that means we're already increasing input latency by quite a bit. You know, whatever the frame rate is times three, usually, uh, is your default input latency, not on top of all the other input latency considerations a game may have. Uh, so you're having that. Then all of a sudden, now you have the ability to half that with a 30 FPS cap or uh, use 40 hertz or 45 hertz modes and start capping there. As you can imagine, with this this version of triple buffering that I've just described, you're going to massively increase the latency as soon as you start doing any of these caps. Uh, it may not be noticeable in all game types, but it will definitely become noticeable in some rather rapidly due to the fact that you're queuing up three frames before the input is actually really being registered. So, you know... And that's not even talking about the other increreased latency just from like engine level stuff and yeah, there's other parts to the latency chain right it's there's not just so the many other things buffering. yeah so like i don't actually find this a big deal i i i'm really not wanting to look into it because i know the reason already ahead of time why normal frame rate capping induces input latency issues in general because you're dealing with triple buffering um this is why I don't think it's actually a big deal at all, especially for 40 hertz mode, where it's obvious why that is <laughs> has an intense input latency wait, consideration. Is it, isn't it? Is, I don't have a deck, so if you enable 40 hertz mode, 
that would be different than like capping the frame rate at 40 frames per second in that mode, right? Yeah. So you should still be able to use 40 hertz without sacrificing oh, yeah, input you, latency. You could use the uncapped 40 hertz mode, uh, which is still, of course, doing true triple buffering. Uh, but at that moment in time, you're really killing your battery life. Um, yeah. So I don't that. see any good reason to do that. That's a uh, shame, though, because, you know, then it, it does seem like to get the best battery life, you really basically have to give up input response then. Well, well, give up. It's, it's just about the input response as you would get on a console. Uh, for the most part, most games don't use true triple buffering. Like it's pretty rare. That's the reason. No, why. that's that's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah, there's a reasons why though, because true triple buffering also doesn't guarantee uh, things like proper animation sequence playback, and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so there's a number of reasons why true triple buffering is not what is desirable for a console-like experience of uh, really reliable frame delivery and things like that. So it, uh, my humble opinion is just to not use the frame rate capper then uh, <laughs> if you are concerned about input latency, but then at the same time, it's the, it's the Steam Deck. It, it, it's limited to 60 hertz. It's not a high performance PC. Uh, you're going to be looking at input latency that you would see in a console game or a Switch game at that point in time. Uh, so that's the way it is. And I don't find this a big deal. And I did rant for a little bit there, but I feel like um, it's missing the point a little bit to start talking about input latency when you're talking about a frame yeah. cap on a device like this, because it's not a high performance VRR display and it things is, like that. It so. is interesting to think about because, you know, even in the console space, there is actually a lot of difference in input latency between different platforms. Yeah, and games. Uh, I found. Uh, yes, games, of course, but like if there's there's many cases where the same game released on Switch, Xbox, and PlayStation has dramatically different results for input latency mm -hmm. uh, across each one, and often PlayStation comes in in the worst. Yeah, that's uh, a weird one. I think it's like King of Fighters 15. Is it? Yeah, the uh, most recent KOF. Yeah. Where like the PS5 and PS4 version has like an extra two or three frames of lag or something like that versus the other versions. Uh, and this, it's not a new thing. I think, especially with Unreal Engine, it tends to be much higher in PlayStation. Yeah. So no it is interesting that. to see how um, even that, it does feel like Microsoft's put a lot of work into ensuring the least amount of latency in their games. Mm. Uh, that's not to say there's not lower latency games on PlayStation as well. It's just that with these multi-platforms, uh, whatever they're doing, Xbox does tend to have an advantage there. And yeah. Switch is generally pretty good as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of factors that go into this, I think. And yeah. that's just one factor in it. Yeah. <laughs> and on Xbox, you also have like that really extremely low latency controller pull. Yeah, right? yeah, that was added for Which the series consoles, has... I think, right? Did, did they ever yeah, bring that? Yeah. Is that, I, I've, I think they maybe updated older pads, but I don't know if Xbox One systems have been updated Supported with that. It? I, I don't know that. Not. I know the pads work though. It's the pads I'm thinking yeah. of, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. but you're uh, right yeah so yeah. but that's i think i think you answered you got you got the point across alex thank yeah. you yeah i mean now I, we can all rest i, I didn't want to talk down to any of the concerns because i saw concerns on the discord about this I also got legitimate concerns i think because I mean, input latency enough, sucks but, but you know like latency sucks but at the same time we have to look at the you know the deck is what why it really is. why yeah, exactly. why, would why is it like this yeah. and that's that's a good reason also, thinking of, like, again, man, it's just another alternate reason. You look at something like uh, Ghostwire Tokyo, right? And the yes. way they implement the the dead zones and the, the acceleration on the analog stick, 
creates the impression of extreme input lag where it feels extremely muddy to play when in reality it's not actually like input lag it's just their implementation of the right stick camera and you can really feel this on pc where play with the mouse feels super responsive plug in a controller same frame rate and it feels terrible it's extremely laggy right so again there's so many factors that determine why games feel sluggish um yeah so definitely an interesting topic though but let's move on to another topic uh i'm gonna go out of order here actually <clears throat> so this comes from your man in penang and he says, I have two friends who play Elden Ring on PlayStation 5 and two who play on the PC. They all said it runs great. <laughs> okay. When I mentioned the game's performance issues, does this vindicate from software's decision to not focus on technical performance when it seems that only the enthusiast crowd notices or cares about inconsistent frame times and shader compilation stutter? I don't know, Oliver. What do you think about this? Because I think we all have thoughts. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to play Elden Ring on like the uh, well, just 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 to hurt myself, I guess. <laughs> I tried to play Elden Ring on Xbox in both modes without VRR, like through my capture Oof. setup, just to see how bad mm -hmm. it was. And I played I played a couple hours that way, and it was really a horrible experience. And I, I yeah I I just can't sympathize with this perspective. Like surely like I I have friends who play Elden Ring on current and last gen console and don't express any sort of issues with it. But um, I have been able to point out in a couple of cases, like when I'm over at their place, like hey, you know you know how this is like much less smooth than this other game that you're playing that is actually a locked thirty or or whatever, mm. right? So I think you can show people but they just don't have that same sensitivity. But it's something that's a bit of a mystery to me because, like, the moment I turn on Elden Ring without yeah, VRR... it's bad. Uh, ...on Xbox or PlayStation 5 and the native code, it's horrible. It's so, so bad. And I, and I also, like, like secondarily, like, they could fix... I'm convinced that a fix would not be that difficult for I Elden yeah, Ring. I agree. Right? To, to get it up to the performance level. So it's sort of like a weird... It's not really a trade-off here between, like, oh, yeah, most people are fine with it and it'd be so much work, so whatever... Like this is just the bare minimum of work. Even like a just a straight thirty cap. I mean, well, they, their so their thirty much, FPS you know. cap is bad. Well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, just yeah, the yeah. fact <laughs> that we know the PS4 Pro version runs at a very stable frame rate on a PS5 shows the game can work smoothly on this system. It's yeah, down to the yeah. decisions they made with these versions that's that causing the problem, right? Yeah. My opinion here is that there's no vindication because you know a lot of things work but they don't work well and a lot of people don't notice it. But it doesn't mean that like the standards should be laxed, uh, for example. like A lot of people probably wouldn't notice if the, the, the Hertz refresh rate on their lights was lower, uh, but maybe it would like degrade, degrade their, uh, like the visual acuity over time and things like that, uh, things that they wouldn't notice immediately. So you don't want to always just lack standards because there's, a, there's an immediate general populace, um, I don't know how to say it, just malaise with regards to the standards you, you need standards for a reason so exactly yeah. the best the best games aim for the moon you know mm -hmm. they're aim for the stars whatever uh it's you know there's always going to be people that are sensitive to these things and i think it does matter and even though i've always had this argument and i've not actually done the scientific legwork to determine whether or not this holds true but i'm of the opinion that higher performance matters more than people believe it does on the surface you would say oh well joe six pack 
Fortnite man over oh, there doesn't actually care about performance. He doesn't care. He doesn't notice it. It's fine. But then you look at most of the best-selling games, not all, but most of the best-selling games each month, the games that people are playing a lot, and you'll discover that most of them run at 60 frames per second, at least, right? And have very crisp input response, smooth performance. These people may not understand why those games feel so satisfying to play, but they know it does, right? And I think that there is there is actually a lot of benefit there. And this is something I think like the Call of Duty games, for instance, really tapped into at a time when when games were you, you go back to like the PS3 era, games were moving in this direction of these more complicated renders with a lot of extra latency, huge performance costs, you know, unstable frame rates. And Call of Duty's like, ah, we're just we're gonna aim for 60, we're gonna go for fast input response. This is our goal. And sure enough, people played the heck out of those games. They may not have understood why it felt as good to play, but it did. And a lot of it comes down to that aiming for that high performance target. So I do think it actually does matter. Like it's not going to tank a game. Like Elden Ring is still popular, of course, but I think it it behooves them to aim for something a little better. Uh, so yeah. All right, next question comes from Jonas Larsen. Uh, I, I can't even say it. I'm so I'm sorry, Jonas. That's uh, difficult. Uh, all right. He says, do you think we will see GameCube emulation on the Switch following Nintendo 64 via Nintendo Switch Online? Would it even be technically possible? Hmm. Um, I think it would be quite possible, but I don't know. What Oliver? Are you have you? What do you think about this? Well, I mean, I think it's obviously very possible considering that nintendo seems to have a working emulator that they used for uh mario all-stars and legend of zelda skyward sword and and with that emulator i believe they were um emulating the gpu in particular and they were recompiling instructions for the cpu if if that's correct that's yeah i believe that's what it was yeah so my suspicion would be that if they for instance, were to launch like a Metroid Prime collection or another similar collection of titles, that they probably would just go with um, an emulated or semi-emulated solution based on that internally. But I don't think they'll launch like an NSO-style expansion to GameCube. I think their strategy so far and their strategy in the future is probably going to be these discrete bundles of semi-remastered, semi-emulated titles. I think that's probably where they'll go with it. I think that's exactly right. Uh, they will probably continue to sell occasional games like this in this new form, but I don't think we're just going to see blanket emulations. But one of the benefits to their approach to this is that they're able to inject new assets into these games, yeah. right? So that means things like HUD elements, text, UI, everything there, all of that stuff can be replaced with higher quality versions of those original assets, and it can look great as a result. And they can essentially achieve the equivalent of a basic HD remaster while still doing some emulation on the back end. And I would say that, honestly, the results have been generally quite good, Yeah. Uh, especially with Skyward Sword, which I think is just excellent on there. It plays really well. It looks great. Uh, that was a really nice version of the game. Metroid Prime, I think, is a very good candidate. We've seen that rumored for a long time, <laughs> uh, that it's that it's ready to go, and we're just waiting for it to hit. I, I think with that strategically, I could see them when they finally announce Metroid Prime 4 again or like showcase it. They might say, hey, here's uh, the old Metroid Prime games or at least one of them on your Switch right now while you wait for Metroid Prime 4. Uh, 
So, yeah, I mean, I would I would love to see actual emulated. Well, I would like to see more of these on the service, but I think we're going to continue to see them as standalone releases. I mean, Alex, you don't play Switch, but no. I mean, so you don't have any thoughts on this or do you? <laughs> uh, I would like to see Metroid uh, Prime Hunters or whatever it's called re-released in some form. Yeah, the DS game? The DS game. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's gorgeous. I think it's I think it's incredible looking DS game, and it's you know 60 FPS, kind of Unreal's tournament style multiplayer. I thought that was really cool back in the day, but that's what I want. So screw your GameCube. Well, Nintendo DS is is fascinating hardware still. I think, um, in that it could actually really easily support 60 frames per second if you stayed. It basically wants to run at 60 frames per second by default, and you kind of have to go out of your way to push beyond those barriers. Yeah, I uh, thought so- that was really cool. It's it's a neat little piece of kit for sure. The original DS. What about Metroid Prime Pinball? That's that's good too. <laughs> I never played that. It's is that legit. A DS title? I'm telling you. No, it rocks. Is that a D- yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Cool, it's, it's super good. It's it's really good. Uh, yeah, but I think that's probably that's what we have to say on that. So next question, and this one comes from Edwin Crump. Uh, thank you, Edwin, as always. So. This week, Mike Chi, creator of the RetroTink 5X Pro, by the way, uh, teased a Tink 4K on Twitter recently. Do you think this would be a good solution for not only PS360 games, but also Mr. Switch and last-gen base consoles with a 1080p image? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Mr. I don't know. I mean, I, whatever, but because that already has a lot of features. But for 720 and 1080p signals especially, coming over HDMI including the switch uh man i have been searching so long for just a simple device where you can plug in one of these devices and get out a perfectly nearest neighbor scaled image in 4k that's all i want i want to plug in a 720p device i want to plug in that 360 or or ps3 or the wii u or any of those and just get without any sort of filtering because fundamentally when you send one of those signals to a modern display, it's extremely blurry. They go crazy on the filtering, likely due to the target of um, filmed content, right? Yeah. But why can't we just have nearest neighbor scaling? As Panasonic's done it before in one of their OLEDs. They actually have had this feature before, but nobody else is doing it, and it drives me nuts. And yeah. Mike Chi is the first person I've seen actually tease an actual working device that can potentially do exactly that. Uh, the problem is, is the chips necessary to make that happen are not cheap. So whatever device this becomes, and it probably won't become something for another couple of years, I'd say at best, uh, it's probably not going to be cheap, but it could be worth it. I mean, I don't know. Do you guys have any opinions on this stuff? Because I do think it matters a lot. I mean, Alex, you, you also play around with some older devices sometimes. Yeah. I would like to see a VGA support on on a device of this caliber because, as I've seen, like um, just like there's a greater market for the support of, you know, like scarch and uh, composite component and yeah. uh, things like that. But there isn't a great market for VGA modern VGA capture. It actually usually involves weird daisy chaining and or devices that are old and don't exist anymore. Yeah. So. I would like to see that as a part of this uh, eventual future uh, retro TIG 4K, whatever it may be called. Yeah, I mean, it looks looks really exciting. I play a lot of PS3 and 360 on the 
OG hardware, get the get the raw, horrible experience at times. <laughs> um, so I, I'd love just a scalar that'll, that'll bring that up nearest neighbor, you know, I guess a, th- a three by three to 4K. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, from 720 yeah. that would that would rock i mean i would get that in a heartbeat that that would be a really great product especially it's a little wild that like you said the panasonic oleds had it but like no one is mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. none of these uh like my samsung doesn't do any sort of nearest neighbor and if it no, did i no. would, probably would not be at any sort of appropriate latency right so <laughs> no, none of them really do it for some the, reason. The irony yeah. of you saying that when it's the rawest way to upscale something, it would have terrible way, latency, but it's just not even doing anything. <laughs> well, just I, all, I all these TV features, you know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, man. And the th- the other thing about this, though, the potential is that Mike's done an amazing job with these CRT masks and mm-hmm. LCD masks even, where they're sort of simulating like sub-pixel arrangements. Uh, virtually and his work on that is so freaking good uh it's some of the best i've ever seen on the retrotink 5x pro and having more pixels only improves that so conceivably mm-hmm. you could do something like if you had a 720p input uh he could apply some sort of mask to simulate sort of like the the pixel nature of like let's say you had a native 720p digital display you could actually create a mask that sort of simulates that right so not only would you get like yeah. clean scaling to 4k you could actually simulate it as if it were like an actual 720p native screen which could look good as well like all this stuff becomes possible when you're doing clean scaling up to 4k there's also you know i think it was was it was like 6444 etc i'd be curious if there'd be a way to do that and also plug it into an hdr uh container to maybe like abuse uh, uh to abuse like brightness levels so I, that if you use that you know, like you get like a really bright image with like the larger size pixels. You know what I mean, John? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I, I've talked to Mike about this before and there's definitely potential there. Uh, but obviously there's a lot of work to be done on that side. What's interesting is right now the RetroTink 5X has an experimental 4K mode. Uh, but mm-hmm. because limited bandwidth and the, ch- the chip performance that he's using, uh, it is limited to 4K at 24 hertz. Uh, so it's not actually usable for any games, really but it is sort of a preview of what native 4k scaling would look like on this thing. And again, mm-hmm. the, the Tink 5X is an analog input scaler, so you can't just do HDMI to it either. Whereas this new thing he's currently, it just has HDMI currently, but it's not a real product. So lots of potential there, Mike, but also pixel effects, all these guys, they're, they're just doing such good work in this space. Seriously. It's, it's so much appreciated. Uh, nobody else is making this kind of stuff really and we Mm. need it because modern displays just don't take this stuff into account and that sucks so all right let us move on we got a couple more questions here or maybe even more let's see let's see how it goes so uh next one is from left is hominid again or the games that hominid (laughs) yes oh is that what it says left is hominid okay not alien hominid, if you yeah. remember that. <laughs> of course, yeah. uh, the games that most effectively make use of the Switch hardware tend to be first or second party games from Nintendo or developers that almost exclusively develop for Nintendo. Looking over your Series S coverage, however, it seems that third party developers don't always put in the best Series S optimizations. Do you think that Series S will have a sort of Switch situation where the games that use its hardware to the fullest are typically from Microsoft first-party studios, for example? 
Uh, for example, first Forza Horizon 5 looks beautiful on the Series S compared to third-party Series S games. Alex? Probably end up being that way because we've heard... I mean, I don't want to disappoint anyone in the Series S audience there that watches Digital Foundry, but we've heard from multiple developers that they kind of feel the Series S is a bit of a pain at times. Uh, not the CPU or GPU power there, but it's more like the memory constraints. Uh, uh, so, so I could actually see that being the case uh, in the eventual further far-flung future of this all. But we've also seen really great third-party Series S releases, so I don't want to discount it. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it probably will never be to the same degree that you see on Switch, because those are mostly original projects that are being released and, and are being developed around the capabilities of the, of the Switch. In this case, we're just talking about basically ports of, of different kinds um, or different versions that aren't running quite as well relative to uh, first party versions. Um, but yeah, it does seem like, you know, Developers like the Coalition will really be getting a, a good amount out of the Series S, and uh, some third parties will just struggle, especially with the memory situation and games with ray tracing and stuff like that. I think it's going to be a bit of a... But we might be seeing some quite badly cut down versions, so, yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of been the biggest puzzle factor, I think, here, is specifically the memory situation and how it relates to ray tracing, as ray tracing does have significant memory requirements, and the Series S is kind of limited in that way that can potentially make this difficult to pull off, I'd imagine. Uh, and a lot of developers have kind of suggested this as well. Uh, obviously, it is feasible. We've seen The Matrix Awakens running on Series S. It does work. Um, I think they will be able to find solutions to this. But for, you know, the dream we still have, I think, is to see games developed from the ground up with stuff like RTGI, for instance which has a direct impact on the development process as well, because then you don't have to worry about baking lights and doing all these crazy probes and stuff like that. You can just build knowing that the lighting system is actively uh, real-time, and what you're seeing there is what you get. And so that's that's a good thing on that side, but it is expensive. So, um, yeah, I know. I, I'll be curious to see how the S ages overall. And... The other, the other thing, though, about the S that could be positive is the fact that if, as long as developers are targeting this, it might mean that games then have... They essentially need to have guaranteed overhead that might make performance better on the larger machines. You know what I mean? It's like you're tar the game has to run on this minimum spec, but then you also have these other specifications to hit that where they could potentially push them in other ways to ensure better performance, maybe unless they're pushing the res too high or doing something else like that. But I don't know. It'll yeah. be interesting to see how it goes. So one thing that this made me think about actually here was, um, so on the PZ space, uh, one of the reasons why uh, ray tracing consumes so much more uh, memory is due to the fact that this bounding volume hierarchy, this acceleration structure that is required to make GPUs actually performing and ray tracing at all, well, that thing cons consumes quite a bit of memory because it's like, imagine, it's like a, a version of the scene in a form uh, that needs to be an active GPU yep. memory. Well, in the PC space, I remember reading about this a while back uh, on an NVIDIA blog, and then there's been some other things about it elsewhere. Uh, there's something called BVH compaction that can be done. And curiously enough, one thing I'm finding when reading about it, there's a website called TellUSIM, uh, which looks into like cross-platform ray tracing, da-da-da, mesh shader, blah-blah-blah performance, all these things. Really cool articles. 
Um, they looked into uh, memory compaction across the vendors uh, for AMD and NVIDIA, and using that BVH compaction really shrinks the size of that BLAST B, uh, BVH structure on NVIDIA GPUs, but it doesn't do much of anything on AMD GPUs, curiously. Um, huh. So I'm wondering if that is also another issue on the Xbox Series and Xbox Series X side of things. I have no idea. Uh, but it's one thing that I came across once before, and it just when we were just talking about it, now I thought about it. It's interesting. Um, so if you want, if you're curious about it, Google like BVH compaction or something like that, and then you'll find a lot of blogs about it. And Tell You Sim website has always been really cool. So check that out. All right. So uh, we got three more questions. I think let's do the next one then from Overbridges. They say, is HDR more trouble than it's worth? I recently switched to purely only using SDR for everything due to the simplicity of never having to calibrate games again. Why does HDR need calibration when SDR does not? Seems to me like a major step backwards in terms of usability. What even is HDR in the first place? The current HDR landscape seems fairly complicated with mixed results for different TVs and games. And you're right, Overbridges, HDR is indeed compliment, uh, complicated. And fundamentally, I mean, again, the basic reason for HDR is to increase the overall dynamic range in an image, right? Because, you know, in real life, you can go between a very dim, dark room to like outdoors in the sun. And modern video technology essentially allows you to display a larger range. Panels can get much brighter than they could in the past when the old standards were established. Uh, and now they can actually display that full range. The problem is, is traditionally, uh, if you try to do like a huge range like this between super dark and super bright on a screen, the the amount of color information and like display characteristics necessary to make that work would have resulted in issues essentially like banding and whatnot. And, you know, they just couldn't get that bright either way. And they couldn't discreetly show the different parts of the image of that variable brightness necessarily. So HDR has several key points then. First of all, uh, a proper HDR signal has increased the number of colors per pixel, essentially. So you're increasing the bit depth from 8 bits per pixel, or whatever it would have been prior, depending on the input, to a minimum of 10 bits per pixel, right? So that just increases the total number of colors. And that's really important for handling this vast array of scene changes and brightness differences and colors that can be shown in an HDR scene. Um, it's not just about like richer colors or making stuff super bright. It is about that range, right? And I think the best example of an HDR presentation to me is when you have something where it's like you have a very bright sky contrasted against slightly darker ground, especially if you have like cloud cover. You know, the sky is still bright in real life, even if it's shadowed looking in real life or on the ground level. Uh, and now games can kind of simulate that. But the reason this gets so complex is because one, there's different standards and the default HDR standard uh, has some limitations that sort of give it the, the meta, the metadata that it literally sends out is static. Right. Um, but the bigger issue here is that all displays are not created equally. They all have different capabilities and HDR is naturally asking a lot more of these displays. Right. And so calibration is all about tailoring the content, to your specific monitor or TV. Like let's say monitor A can only get like X number of brightness where monitor B can get so much brighter. 
If you treat them exactly the same, you would end up with a situation where one appears darker than it should, or like bright highlights are completely like washed out where you're actually losing a ton of detail and it just doesn't look right. And, you know, Dolby Vision actually seeks to solve this somewhat. That, that whole standard there is like, you know, if your TV is compatible with Dolby Vision, it's like certified for this and like the ranges and everything are known. So when it's getting the signal, uh, it actually should treat it correctly. So you're not like overdriving a display or sending bad information. Whereas with like HDR10, you still need to do some sort of tone mapping usually. And there's different ways to do that. Some, some of them dynamic. And depending on how the display treats that information coming to it, you're going to get different results. And all this is to say is like, just because of all this variation right now and the capabilities of the different sets, that's why you need to calibrate this stuff differently. Uh, and we're still at the point where like, technically you should calibrate at the system level, like for like PS5 and Xbox series consoles. But even then some games do still have options in the menu for adjusting this stuff if you want. And yeah, it's just about overcoming display limitations, right? I mean, I, this is such a deep topic. I don't want to keep rambling as I have just now, but I mean, you guys, does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the display limitations part is really important. Uh, but at the same point in time, one thing that I think overbridges, I mean, I know I, I've struggled with this before, is just the general brightness of HDR. Like, I, I'm not really comfortable with really bright lights, just like right in my eyes uh, a, a lot of the time. So I do think the standard at some point in time does have to rein itself in. I don't know what level that is of brightness. Um, I don't know how you feel about that as well, Oliver John, but I like I, I really like the increased color palette of HDR and the general change in range within the set itself, like one area being brighter than the other. But I don't don't know if I need super bright spots of the screen. So it's not I actually think it's it it really is just getting super bright, I agree, that can actually be uncomfortable. And that's kind of why I like OLED as well, because OLED peak brightness is actually lower than LCD peak brightness. And I think that's good because when you get those highlights that are super, super bright, at least in my viewing environment, it's not actually very comfortable to look at. I don't want that. Uh, even if it is technically more realistic, I suppose. Like who wants to look at the sun? Right? <laughs> yeah, who really um, does? So, but like I was watching uh, the recent remake, I guess, of Dune uh, on 4K Blu-ray. And one of the things I noticed about that movie in HDR versus the SDR presentation is the way they handle dark scenes. There's a lot of scenes in that movie that are very dark and very in shadow. And there's like this extra depth that's possible there uh, with the increased color palette and or the color depth, as well as the when they do bring in a brighter light, it feels far more impactful. Uh, and it just creates this mood and look that was really, really striking to me in a way that you don't really get in SDR, where everything feels like it's been flattened. Like SDR realistically shouldn't actually be that bright, but modern TVs allow you to crank it way the heck up uh, into like levels similar to HDR, but you don't get that range. And that's kind of the big difference. I mean, how much experience do you have with this, Oliver? And what kind of set are you using? Um, I'm using a Samsung Q70A at 55 inch. Okay. Um, and it does get very bright. It has a very, like the HDR implementation on it isn't that great because it doesn't have local dimming. 
Oh, um, which, yeah. Which conversely makes the VRR not so painful. <laughs> yeah, you exactly. Anything. You don't so it's a bit, it. a bit of a trade off. But it's basically like it's, it's, it overall, it's quite a good set. But um, it does get extremely bright. It gets up to like 600 nits in HDR. So it gets pretty, pretty bright. And um, in general, I kind of just set it uh, visually for each title and it always looks fine. And it's like never, never a huge upgrade over SDR because there isn't a lot of dynamic contrast or anything like that in the image, but um, it looks fine. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> you're right. The, the display type matters a lot in this stuff. Yeah. That's for sure. But brightness, I, I just remembered, I have uh, one of my capture devices, the Atomos Shogun 7, and that actually supports up to 3,000 nits. And uh, I've, I've looked at this stuff at HDR with this stuff cranked up, and because it's like a professional video monitoring kind of capture device as well, I guess it needs that. But 3,000 nits or like this high like brightness levels, it sucks to look at. <laughs> Like, even on a small screen, it's just, it's eye-searing. And I know that there's professional monitors that get a lot brighter than that, even, that they use for, like, grading these things. And I I don't know how true this is, but I have heard tales of people having uh, eye issues while working on these types of monitors at these high brightness levels. Like, it's not really safe to yeah, do. Yeah, like snow so, blindness or something. I don't know about pushing pushing brightness this high. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's a bit crazy. <laughs> but anyway... That's that's enough HDR talk for now. Uh, let's go in the opposite direction with a question from Anna Ray here. Question for John. What kinds of games are best suited for black frame insertion? Is there anything I can do if the flicker is too bothersome? On my LG C1, the flicker is very troubling to me at, at the high setting on 60 hertz content. Do I just need to get used to it? Yes, you do, basically. Um, I So a lot of people ask me about black frame insertion. What's best to use on it? Like, basically... If you can't stay on the flicker and the flicker isn't going to work for everybody, then that you know there's really nothing you can do about that. That's just the way it is, right? It's more like a CRT in that regard, but even more so because it is essentially like strobing the screen. Uh, that doesn't bother me so much, but I know it definitely does others. So whether you can use it is going to first hinge upon that. But as far as content that is best suited for it, well, everything that's side-scrolling, any sort of 60 frames per second or higher side-scrolling game benefits tremendously. Like Sonic Mania, for instance, one of my favorite games, uh, you play that on uh, on any sort of flat panel display with a sample and hold setup, and it's just a blur fest. It just smears into nothing. You lose all the detail. It's hideous. I hate it. Uh, you play it with black frame insertion or on a CRT or something, uh, and it's razor sharp, crystal clear. All those like geometric patterns in the art remain razor sharp no matter how fast you're moving and it looks so good uh but it also is beneficial for just about any game with a lot of fast movement especially if there's no motion blur that's one of the reasons i recommended resident evil 8 village is because it doesn't have sort of camera motion blur and it's a dark game as well so the slight brightness hit isn't a big deal but you just get this this extreme clarity because you're constantly rotating the camera in that game bfi helps so much there <clears throat> i mean I'm actually curious though, like how much experience do you guys actually have with this technology? BFI, very little, because my I've, we talked about this before. With my screen technically supports BFI, um, and I think it also supports in one twenty hertz mode, but I've barely ever used it there. Uh, but I know for sixty hertz mode, my BFI, whatever it does uh, with the flashing, it also has some intense color distortion for things that do move. So they're clear, but they're also color distorted, usually shifted red. 
uh, shift to red green. I, I don't know what it is, but it doesn't. It's not very attractive, so I've never really used it. Um, so quality of your display, I would assume the the C C one C two C X are the best for this kind of thing. But in general, uh, if you're having trouble at 60 hertz content, like John said, I think um, there's not much you can do. Maybe putting it down a setting to the medium or low. I don't know what what settings to see. Doesn't it doesn't look nearly yeah, as good? So at that I point, you're say, losing the benefit. I, I would say though, if you're a, if you're a PC gamer, you want to use 120 hertz with black frame insertion mm-hmm. then, because that helps so much in terms of overall image quality. It brightens it. The flickering is cut in half. You know, I mean, 120 hertz strobing, BFI, ultra low motion blur, whatever you want to call it, is so good. <laughs> it's so good. It makes just a world of difference. And there are actually some PC monitors, not many, but some that support a combination of BFI or strobing and VRR. Uh, I wish there was a lot more. There are limitations to that, of course, but that is a cool feature as well. So, yeah, that's just kind of, you know uh that's my thing man i need i need it i hate i hate persistence blur on flat panels it just sucks (laughs) my goal is to help convince people and really continue to raise this issue and maybe maybe get some display manufacturers to actually listen and start you know taking taking this seriously because it matters it matters a lot but we have one last question and this one's kind of special well sort of it's because it's for oliver and it's from WK Snacks. And it says, question for Oliver. Uh, what's your professional background, if you don't mind sharing? I ask as you've really hit the, round, the ground running with Digital Foundry, creating sharply edited videos and showing great understanding ability to explain games and 3D rendering techniques. And I agree, by the way. You're doing awesome work, Oliver. But uh, what, what do you have to say to Mr. or Mrs. WK Snacks here? Yeah, thank you, WK Snacks and John. So basically my professional career uh, consists of working in Canadian news media as predominantly as a video editor for the past six or seven years. Oh, cool. Um, I did a lot of videography, um, did, did, did a lot of video editing, showed a lot of interviews, green screens, multicams, video podcasts, uh, did a lot of motion graphics work in templating, kind of got a little taste of everything. And I also have worked overseas in Africa, Europe, the Middle East, like lots of cool stuff, cool assignments. That's awesome. That's what I was, yeah, that's what I was up to. And in terms of the uh, rendering side of things, and in terms of learning more about how games actually operate and work, uh, I would have to credit to some degree, uh, probably over a decade of reading and watching Digital Foundry content, (laughs) that probably has helped (laughs) a decent bit, but also um, reading technical documentation, watching GDC talks, uh, reading enthusiast forums, uh, you know, toying around myself and different graphics engines like that. You know, that definitely is a big part of it as well. So yeah, the, the editing side, I've just been an editor, you know, for professionally for a long time and the, uh, the, the graphic side has just a bit of passion of mine that, uh, up until recently was, <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. a hobby, but, uh, but obviously I've come aboard and I think it's been, been pretty good. So yeah. Thank you very much for the question. Oh, that's, that's awesome, man. I love this stuff. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough to join up in, in the DF world, I think. And, uh, Oliver just happens to have the very specific set of skills that we mm-hmm. need and doing a bang up job Heck on yeah. it. I gotta say. Amazing work, so, Oliver. 
And it's been really great to have you on this DF Direct as well, despite being very early or late or whatever you want to say. Uh, <laughs> it's a pleasure, and we definitely want to have you back, especially so you know all of us can get some breaks in here as yeah. well. <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah, ra- round out the cast a little bit. But, yeah, so, gentlemen, we've reached the end of the show. Thank you both for being here and putting up with my uh, not-rich-quality hosting skills. Uh, But that's going to do it for this show. Of course, you know, uh, thank you for supporting us, all of you DF supporters, and everybody else that's watching us, and we'll see you next time.